As you're having a seat, church, if you would grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Ephesians. If you're new with us, I want to say welcome. We're thrilled that you are here. Uh, We are walking through the book of Ephesians. We have two more weeks. This week and then next week we're done, which is crazy. We've gone through all of the book of Ephesians. And so um, we find ourselves right now in what many theologians kind of call the house codes that Paul is describing for us. And so uh, we spent some time looking at the marriage relationship as Paul begins to talk about, hey, our great salvation that we've been saved and rescued and redeemed from our sins, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, that we are now sons and daughters of the Most High King, and we're saved, and he's given us the Holy Spirit. He's kind of set the stage in the first four chapters, and he says, in light of that, this is now how we live our lives in the everyday realms of our lives. How do we operate now as husband and wife? How do we parent our children now in light of the gospel? And then this week, he will turn, and then he's going to be talking about the working relationship, a job, a boss, an employer, an employee. And so this is where we find ourselves this morning. And so Paul begins to talk through in light of all that Jesus has done. Now, as you work, work unto the Lord, essentially. And so here we go. Ephesians 5, or Ephesians 6, I'm sorry, verses 5 through 9 is our text this morning. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to dig in. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. Anyone ever grow up, or maybe, hey, maybe right now, have just a terrible job? Anyone have one of those just like jobs that you're just like, man, that was just a bad job? You're like, yeah, I've got one right now. Let's talk about it. Um, I had a really bad job after my senior year of high school. I left my Cush. Uh, Albertsons. I was a grocery sacker and worked at the photo lab. I left the Cush air conditioning space of the grocery store of Albertsons or the photo lab at Albertsons back when you had, when people actually developed pictures. I know that was long ago. They don't even have those anymore, do they? We all just store them on our phones forever and ever and ever if you're like me. But I developed pictures. I left that and I went and got a job uh, at an, in an unair conditioned factory in Oak Ridge. And this factory, I think it, I left because they paid double. So I think I was making like $8.50 an hour rather than like $5.50 an hour, whatever it was back then, right? It was like, this is going to be great money. And so um, it was full time during the summer, unair conditioned factory in Oak Ridge. This company took industrial sized, follow with me, bags that were normally filled with agricultural products like soybeans, corn, and like they would, they would load them on the back of semis, right? They would be filled with, or like rubber pellets for like tires that they would crush up. And so our job, this company discovered that these company, these places were throwing these bags away. So we're going to buy these bags back. We're going to clean them, recycle them, uh, and then we're going to sell them back to them. 
And so that was their business model. They needed a team of people like myself to clean said bags, right? And so these bags, we had multiple different stations in this factory at 129 degrees in Oak Ridge in the Texas summer. These giant bags, you could fit probably 10 men inside of these bags. They had the blower room. So you would take the bags, you would flip it over, and it would blow it up. And it had come from the field, so it was full of leftover soybeans, leftover corn, dead rats, particles of trees. Not kidding, we found all sorts of nasty in there. In my job, I usually worked in the blower room uh, because I was a football player, and that's just what I did all day. And he would take it, blow it up, and he would just start banging it in dirt and dust and rat stuff would just drop out of it. And then you'd send it on to the next people. And they had bought a giant washing machine from Levi where they would wash the bags. And then the bags would come out. You'd put them on a light table. And then you'd have to see if any little soybean was left in there and remove it. Otherwise, it would mold. And when they sent it back to the field, they'd have moldy stuff on their bags. So it was this meticulous process. The most interesting, so that was horrible in and of itself, right? It's just manual labor, eight hours a day in a factory uh, in the blower room, right, with me and my closest friends. My closest friends in this job, come to find out, they were partnered uh, with a parole service. And so it was me and three of my high school friends and a whole bunch of ex-convicts that were just released from prison. And uh, they were all working right next to me. So it was quite an enlightening summer for me. Right, coming out of the Woodlands High School. I had uh, my buddy who was put in the slammer for cocaine charges. I had uh, Miss Bill who was, for some reason, her hair was always wet, it was hot, and she would just pour. And then we had a guy named Glenn. Glenn was always, for some strange reason, wearing a welding mask. We don't know why, it was just creepy and weird. So I didn't talk a lot to anyone and we just sort of did our work. And uh, I think I quit two weeks before the end of my term because I was like, I'm done, I can't do this anymore, right? So that was my just, it was not a great job, but I did, worked full time and made some good money and met some really interesting people. I could tell, I could stand up here for an hour talking about the stories of all the characters that we met cleaning industrial sized agricultural bags. It was quite a summer to say the least. So here we have a text that's gonna talk about work. It's gonna talk about our motivation for work. It's gonna talk about motivation if you employ people, if you have people in your care. And I think what Paul is trying to help us understand now as the rubber meets the road, if the gospel has, has saved you, if you are a believer in Christ, we need to understand that Christian, as a Christian, work is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. God is a worker. And we're workers. So some jobs, like mine that summer, was not high on the desirability scale, right? That's to say the least. But we understand as we read the scriptures that work is not a result of the fall. It was a pre, it was before the fall. We, God called us to work, to cultivate, to take care of things, to uh, steward the things that he's given us. Work is not a result of the fall. We have uh, corrupted it, we have stumbled, and we have fallen like we do with many other things in life, but work is not a result of the fall. God calls us to be workers, even pre-fall, pre-sin, pre-corruption. So here's a question that I have this morning that we're going to try to help answer on the back end of, our, uh, of my time this morning. How do we find meaning and fulfillment in our daily vocation? Whether you're paid or unpaid, we all work at things. 
whether you uh, work for a corporation downtown, whether you work at home for yourself, whether you stay at home and you work and labor uh, with your children, bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord we, we talked about the last couple of weeks. So on one level, this is a very true reality. It's like, okay, well, why do, how do we find meaning? How do we find value in our work? What does this look like? Well, on just bare minimum, because they pay me, right? That's how I make money. That's how I pay the bills. That's how I feed my family, feed myself, buy clothes, buy the things that I need, provide a home, all these things that I have to do that are in front of me. And for many of us, that's it. Um, because if they didn't pay me, I just wouldn't do it. For example, no one will clean industrial size agricultural bags and volunteer to do that job eight hours a day in an unair conditioned factory in Oak Ridge. No one's just saying, yeah, that sounds cool. I can just live out my calling doing that. Like, you're going to have to pay me to do that one, right? That's some of them, absolutely, right? But something greater than money should motivate us in our work. And this text shows us that we need to view Christ as our ultimate boss, so to speak, as the one over us, as the one in charge, as the one that is looking after us, as our ultimate boss. It's for him that we labor, Paul is going to tell us. And in this text, what we're going to see here is that uh, we can transfer masters, so to speak, or bosses those that are over us, those that give us what our jobs are supposed to be throughout the day without even transferring our jobs. You can transfer your allegiance, you can transfer who's over you, who's in charge of you without even transferring jobs or changing jobs. And the way you find fulfillment in work, whether in a crummy job or a good job, is understanding the one whom your ultimate aim is to please, and that's Jesus. So the scriptures are going to tell us. This is what Paul is going to remind us. Because it's in work, many of us spend a lot of our time laboring for companies, for people, for things, um, and we can often lose sight of it. it we, we end up placing this sacred, uh, secular divide. Paul doesn't look at it like that. It's not, I do this over here in the secular world, and then I do this over here in my Christian world. Paul says that divide doesn't exist. As a Christian, you are placed where you are on purpose for a reason. And your aim, even in working in a secular job, is to please and honor Christ in your work. And if we understand that, if Jesus is our ultimate authority, it radically changes the way we view our work the way we view what we do, how we spend our time. Now, we're gonna see this in this context that Paul is writing. Many of you, if you don't have, if you have the ESV translation like we have up on the screen, uh, it, was, it says bond servants. Many of you have different translations. It will say slaves or servants, some of your translations. Our, ours also translated, translates this master. So what we have here is interesting. You have slave and master language in this text, okay? Now, why is, why is it written like this? Why does it say this? These spark a lot of emotional response from a lot of us for very good reason. Uh, the, at the time that Paul writes this, at the, the time that Paul is writing this letter to this church, there were an estimated 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Wrap your mind around that. 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 
It is said some historians and theologians believe that um, possibly one out of every two people was in some type of servitude or born into slavery in some capacity. That's remarkable. It was pervasive. It, it was pervasive in every uh, facet of society and every facet of their economy. It was all over the place. Slave and master relationships. Um, and so, knowing that, this church that Paul is writing this letter to, that he's trying to help them understand the gospel implications on their lives, was probably a church full of people that were serving as slaves, as their job. S slavery then was a little bit different than what we have in our American uh, mind uh, as we're, we understand it. So they were, there were some freedoms of going and uh, different things like that. We're going to get into some of those nuances, but we don't have time to get into all of them. But Paul's addressing many slaves that were in this congregation, that were working in that profession, so to speak, if you are to call it that. And so why, why was that such a pervasive uh, group of people that the gospel spread to? Well, think about the message of the gospel. Paul was just on his missionary journeys. The message of the gospel, the spread of Christ, spread like wildfire to the lowly, to the oppressed, and to the marginalized. Why? Because salvation could be found, salvation could be had, good standing with God, the grace of the Father could be had, not on your own good standing, not on your own righteousness, on your own holiness, not found by your possessions, not found by your position. Salvation was not found through family lineage. It was not found through your job. It was not found through moral uprightness. It was not found through the, your, the amount of wealth you acquired. Jesus said things like this when the gospel message began spreading and Paul began to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus said, the first shall be last. He says, your weakness will actually be your strength in the kingdom of God. The call of the gospel is to all men and women. And so, therefore, slaves at the time were coming to faith in Jesus at a very fast rate. The lowly, the oppressed, they found life and a breath of fresh air in the glorious good news and the realities of the gospel of Jesus. They found their humanity, their dignity in the gospel of Jesus, right? Now, what's fairly typical and which most pastors want to do is jump directly to application in this text uh, because it's just a little bit cleaner and it's a little bit easier, right? And so we, we just want to do this. Okay, let's just jump to employer-employee relationships because that's kind of our world. That's, we understand that. And I think that's a right, good application. I think this translates very, very well. Um, but I think if we jump too quickly, we miss a powerful application in the actual context that Paul's writing in here. Um, and this is not a one, like I said, it's not a one-on-one -on -one correlation to the American situation of American slavery. But here's the question that one we have to answer maybe as you're, if, if you're a Bible student and you grapple with these things as you're reading the scripture, and, and it would maybe feel disingenuous just to jump straight to application. Why doesn't Paul outlaw slavery? That's one question that comes up. It's one question that comes up again and again and again. Why doesn't he just call for abolition? Why doesn't he call 
to end slavery? Why doesn't he call it the wrongs of slavery? You often even hear in our polarizing world, some camps even saying, well, the Bible is pro-slavery. You hear people make that claim, um, which I do not believe is true as God gives us the scriptures. So why doesn't Paul outlaw it here? What's up with slavery here? We, we at Providence North are opposed to that. We, we, there are many facets in modern America right now that there is human slavery that exists in our realities. We fight against it. We want to push back the darkness with the light of the gospel that people would find dignity and life and not be bound to these types of horrific human social conditions. So what should we make of this in these texts? When the scriptures talk of slavery, bondservants, and masters. How do we reconcile this? Well, first of all, a couple things. I'm going to make a couple points. I don't have time to get into it. If you want to talk more about all this, please let's talk more about this. Remember that Paul is not writing about rights here. He's not addressing rights. Paul is addressing responsibilities. This is what he was doing all of chapter 5 and thus far in chapter 6. He's not addressing rights He's addressing responsibilities. Remember, what we would like to do, the American way that we like to approach this, which is when we read things like this, is hard for us. We would like to say, for example, in the marriage text, we would like Paul to say that a woman has a, a wife has a right to be loved. That is her right. Instead, what Paul says, the way he approaches it, is he says, husband, in light of the gospel, you ought to love your wife. He approaches it differently right? He kind of comes at it in a way, to, he comes at it not in terms of rights, but in terms of the responsibility of the believer in Christ. Are you guys tracking with me? Maybe a couple head nods? Okay? Nope, no one. Good. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Um, we in America, we love our rights. So when we don't find them explicit right here, we, it kind of like it tingles and it kind of rubs us the wrong way. But on the flip side, we disdain when someone tells us what our responsibilities should be. We love our rights by and large and we disdain when someone else tells us what our responsibilities should be. That's the way we're wired. Paul is addressing these issues the opposite way. And it feels just, we don't like it. But I believe this is done on purpose, right? So Paul says, this is what we ought to do. And these two are intricately connected. And part of a reason Paul does not tackle this subject and how, uh, and how we should be talking about these responsibilities is because he's saying the realities of the church, of the folks that these, these people are living in, I need to ad address the real realities that they find themselves in in their everyday the responsibilities as they find themselves in the work that they find themselves in. Just like he's gonna say, I'm going to address the responsibilities of a husband, of a wife, of children, of parents, and now of those that are working in the realities that they find themselves in. So do the biblical writers endorse slavery? The answer is no, they don't. Neither this passage nor other passages encourage the abuse of power. It's not in there. This passage does not encourage the mistreatment of other human beings. This passage is all about the ethics of Paul and how the Bible doesn't, it doesn't promote slavery, quite the opposite, right? Here's what I mean. Um, 
when there is silence, it's not a direct call for, um, to abolish slavery, what, why don't they call for that? What's going on here? Uh, why don't we get more here? Why is there just silence? Why is there just responsibilities? Well, here's just a few high-level things that we can see on the heart of God and the heart of the Bible about this topic. Is that fair? We're going to go through a few of those things, then we're going to get an application, uh, and then we'll be out of here. So, listen, neither slavery nor masters are ever viewed positively in the Bible. This is a reality even in the Old Testament. Israel was in awful slavery in Egypt. God freed them. He gave them strict laws, basically insisting they not treat other people like they were treated in their slavery. Masters of slaves are not viewed positively in the Bible at all. One of the pictures of the gospel of salvation is that of freedom of bondage, loosing the chains of bondage. Jesus came to let spiritual captives free. We are enslaved to our sin. Jesus has now freed us by his grace. Being a prisoner of, of others, being stolen, being put in, in servitude is not viewed positively in the Bible. Christianity, some could say even, is a release the captives faith. All right? Paul, here's what we need to understand, is that Paul's teachings and other New Testament teachings actually undermine slavery. They kind of go at it a different way, but they erode it at its very foundational core. Paul, in his letters, Jesus, the good news of the gospel, the Bible, erode and destroy it from within. And so we may not be able to see it outright, but the Bible, and Paul in particular, are not silent on slavery. They just deal with it in a different way. They come at it in a different way. In Ephesians, in fact, Paul tells us to imitate God. Ephesians 5.1. God is a father to the fatherless. God is a protector of the vulnerable. Right? He is a God of justice. He is a God of compassion. He is a God that stands against oppressors. Paul calls trafficking human beings a vile sin. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, if you want a reference for um, Paul calling against this idea of human trafficking. Paul is listing particular sins associated with breaking the Ten Commandments here. Breaking the Eighth Commandment is do not steal. And when he mentions this, he, it's represented with enslavers or a slave dealer or even a kidnapper, it could, be, it could be translated. A word found nowhere else in biblical Greek, except for right there. And he, Paul mentions that this, this idea of do not steal also involves that of human beings. He says a sinful act of stealing a human being is forbidden. And it's actually an expansion of the application of the Ten Commandments in Exodus. And listen to this, Exodus 21. The Old Testament says this. Anyone who steals a man, 21.16, anyone who steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Those are pretty strong words about trafficking human beings. Right? Paul taught equality amongst groups of people. And it's clear in our text this morning and in other texts, for example, Galatians, when Paul says this, there's no difference in Jew, in Greek, in slave or free man. You are all one in Christ, he says. 
Paul is undermining the very fabric of this social structure that existed in his time and the realities that he lived. He's dismantling it from within, not through a set of laws, but through a change of the heart and mind. And here in Ephesians, he plants the seeds of the destruction of slavery beginning with Christian community. He talks about the church. He talks about um, husbands and wives. He talks about children, parents, and now this social construct. And it was subtle, but it was powerful. Paul focused on spreading the gospel in a society that approved of this and in doing so planted the seeds of its destruction through a change of heart and a change of mind, and a change of action as a result. John Stott, the great theologian, in his commentary on Ephesians, says the gospel immediately began, even in the first century, to undermine the institution of slavery, he's talking. It lit a fuse, which at long last led to the explosion which destroyed it. Christianity destroyed slavery in the Roman Empire. Snodgrass, how would you like to have that last name? Another great theologian. He wrote one of my commentaries on Ephesians. Said, these verses are still extremely subversive. The impact as they get in are subversive. And they have long-lasting implications. Paul's main concern is the spread of the gospel. But he also describes the ethics required between Christian and slave and Christian masters, thereby changing the fabric of their relationship. He totally changed it. He changed the fabric of the relationship of this, the reality that they found themselves in by master and slave. And these are the words he uses. By changing how they relate to one another in light of the gospel, in light of their salvation. Because in their church, there was both slave and master. So he plants seeds for its destruction. So does the Bible endorse slavery? No, it does not. Paul basically teaches in such a way that the gospel is able to advance through this social institution all the while undermining it until it eventually dies out. And so today what we're going to do, we're going to talk a little bit about the implications that Paul talked about and then we're going to get to application. So Paul is, I think in our lives, we're going to make the, the application of responsibilities and work and bosses and employees, and I think that's a good application to make in our context, because this is the same sort of dynamic that he's addressing in our relationships to work as an employee and work as a boss over people. And Paul teaches us in this section how the lordship of Jesus meaning Jesus as Lord over everything, not just on Sunday morning, as Jesus as of Lord over our churches, our marriages, our kids, and our work should affect how we work and live. One theologian said it this way. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole dominion of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus says, it's all mine. And so whatever you do as a Christian, Paul's going to say, do it as a servant for Christ, for the glory of Christ. Now, let's look at the text. Here's what Paul's trying to undermine, the abuses in the social contracts. He's going to say, do your work as unto Christ, verses 5 through 8. And so Paul, these two big ideas, he's going to tell the bond servants, he's going to say, work and serve as though you're serving Christ. 
serve as though you're serving Christ himself. Or work in such a way that you work unto Christ. Whatever you find yourself doing, whatever job you have, work as unto Christ. And then he's going to tell masters, or he's going to tell bosses, that you're going to treat those under your employment as if you were treating Christ himself. Right? Notice each of these four verses, Christ is mentioned. Paul keeps going, drilling back to it. This is bigger than yourself. He's verse 5, as you would Christ. Verse 6, as servants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord. Verse 8, received back from the Lord. All of life lived for Christ. Now, while they were to obey their masters, they realize that Christ was their ultimate master. That's the idea that Paul's trying to drive into us. Masters do not stand in the place of Christ. Bosses do not stand in the place of Christ. Paul says that those that are in authority over you are not your Lord. Christ has replaced them if you're a believer. So Paul here is urging that servants transfer masters. Right? This is a big idea for them. Even if they can't transfer jobs. The one whom which you're working for, whom you are pleasing, whom you are um, laboring for is ultimately Christ, Paul says. And in doing so, you honor him. First Corinthians, Paul told those in slavery that they were actually free men of the Lord. He's undermining this whole idea. He's giving them hope beyond their current circumstance that Jesus wants something greater for them and that he's watching, that he knows Paul gives a higher occupation than serving just an earthly master. And he gives them a Christ-centered motivation. All right, with that overarching motive in mind, how exactly were they to glorify Christ in their work? How are we to glorify Christ in our work? Paul mentions at least four ways in how the service should work. First, he says, we're to glorify Christ by re working respectively. Verse 5a, Paul says we're to obey with fear and trembling. Think about this. Why would he say, oh, we read that in context of masters and slaves. We're like, oh, that sounds harsh. Like, should you just be in, in fear of the person? No, remember, Christ is your ultimate authority. Christ is your boss. Work as if you're serving Christ. And in doing so, you will work with a sense of reverence. And it's, that word fear is also translated in the Bible, awe. In awe of Christ. Work as, as though you're working for Christ, as you're serving Christ and be in awe of him through the work that, we, that would, what you do. Second, we're to glorify Christ by working wholeheartedly. Five, B and six. He says, notice the emphasis uh, of the heart here. With a sincere heart. Paul gets to your heart. Doing the will of God from the heart. Verse six. Paul urged these bond servants not to be hypocrites. Not just work real hard when the boss is watching you. He says, by way of eye service as people pleasers. Good thing no one ever struggles with that anymore, right? We've all moved past that idea, right? Just working when the boss is watching. Paul says, put your heart into your work. Don't just be a people pleaser. Don't just give lip service and work when they're watching you. Be full of integrity because you're working and serving as if you're serving the Lord Jesus. Tell a quick story, Josh, who's not here, so I can talk about him because he's not here. He used to, he, he owned, or he, he managed 
all of the Egg and I restaurants in the Houston area. And so he got to meet a lot of interesting characters in the restaurant industry. And he, I remember he often tells me a story about a server that he worked with. And she was, she always like did great. She like made a lot of tips. She was the, as sweet as pie. And uh, she was the, hey, sweetheart, honey lamb, uh, sugar plum and at your table. And can I get you some more orange juice? And just as sweet as can be. And Josh is like, man, when she got back on her smoke break and ripped off the filter and plopped down a Marlboro Red, she would say the most vile things about everyone she was serving. And you were like, this doesn't make sense, right? Like, who are you? Like, it was like frightening, right? And she, he's like, she would smoke them so fast, you couldn't smell it on her. And then she'd go back and sugar plot pie honey bun the, the next table. And it was like, just this strange, like, Jekyll Hyde, like moment, right? You're like, Paul's saying, don't be like that. Don't be disingenuous. Don't just go up and, and pander to people when they're watching you, but be a totally different person when they're not. Christ wants all of you, not just for you to fake it, so you can get a desired outcome. Third thing is Paul says we are to glorify Christ by working willingly. Man, I bet those were hard words in that context. Paul says render service with a good will not with a begrudging spirit. It says, put your heart into it. Put your soul into it. Don't just do a good job when someone's watching, but have integrity in your work. I think here Paul's speaking to us too. Right? After all, you are doing in your work the very will of God. He encourages cheerful and glad service in your work. Fourth, he says that we're to glorify Christ by working expectantly. Paul reminds us that the ultimate reward is coming one day, and it's not just our jobs and a paycheck. Paul reminds them in the situations that they find themselves in that no act of obedience to Christ goes unnoticed. Church, that's for us too. No act of obedience to Christ goes unnoticed. Though no one else is watching you, though no one else may know, what you do behind a closed door or when no one's watching, when you should be doing this, but instead you want to do this, no act of obedience to Christ goes unnoticed. Everything we do gets noticed, and it's noticed by the one who really matters, Paul reminds them. And now he gets to masters, our employers, and he says, treat your servants as you would Christ, verse 9. Now let's notice, um, the words that Paul gives to Christian masters or bosses in this text is just one verse regarding the treatment of these servants. And these exhortations would have been countercultural and life-changing to people that had slaves in their care or bond servants in their care. First, they were to practice mutuality. Paul says, do the same to them. That was unheard of. It says, if they're working diligently for you, if they're treating you with respect, if they're working as if unto the Lord, if they're working hard, you do the same unto them. Don't pay them back with anger. Don't ignore them. He goes, you treat them like a person in your care. Mutual respect, slave and master. He's undermining the very fabric of this social institution. They were to treat them as they wanted to be treated. Respect, integrity, humility, gentleness. Right? Similar to Matthew 25. Whatever you did to the least of these, you did unto me, Jesus said. 
Similar idea here. If they want respect and service, you should give them that as well. Secondly, they're to avoid hostility. He says to these masters, Paul says, stop threatening people. If you're a boss in here, if you have employees, don't be heavy-handed. Don't threaten people. Don't be aggressive. Third, they were to live with a Christ-centered accountability. Paul says this, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. I mean, he comes at them. Listen, the one, these people that are under your care, he is their Lord. He's your Lord as well, and he's in heaven, and nothing gets by him. Treat these people well, because God is our master. He's our great master. Proverbs 15, 2, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on good and evil. And then he closes this idea with God, remember, God is impartial, impartial. Just because you are in a great position, just because you have some money, just because you have this job, just because you think you have this and you have arrived, that doesn't matter in the economy of God. You have not earned any favor with him because of that. Your position, your money, your status, all of these things do not buy you favor with the heavenly father. How you treat those under your care is what matters. Your heart, are you gentle? Do you show justice? Are you kind? Do you pay back what they're giving to you? Are you fair to them? Each of these principles shortened the distance between servant and master. And this would have been radical when Paul wrote it. Employees, do your work unto Christ. Employers, treat your employees as you would treat Christ. And all of, all of life is work under the lordship of Jesus. Now, how does this help us? What does this mean for us? Quickly, we're going to go quick on this. This should change the way we work. If you work a nine to five, if you stay at home, if you work at home, if you have employees, if you are an employee, you don't merely just work. We serve Christ as employees. He is the one whom we're serving, right? These principles that we just listed out that Paul mentions are true of us too in the jobs that we have. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating that you should just workaholism, right? Obviously, Sabbath and rest and all these things come into play, but we're talking about work, so we'll just keep talking about work. Sabbath is for another day, right? We'll talk about that. And you might say, well, my job stinks right now. My job is up in the air right now, as uh, I know is, is a lot of common talk right now. My job, I don't know what the future might hold. I don't know what this is going to look like. Well, where you're at right now, still serve as if you're serving Christ, even if those, uh, even if those over you are not worthy of it. That's the call that Paul gives to us. Because Christ is worthy. And it matters how we conduct ourselves in the day-to-day and how we interact. Work like Christ. Jesus gives us the model of work, work, work ethic. Remember, he humbled himself. He died for sinners. He took, Jesus, it says in Philippians, he took the form of a slave for us. Jesus was a stonemason, most believe, or carpenter in Nazareth of all places. This blue-collar job in a dumpy little town, and you heard nothing about his life for the first 30 years. He worked in obscurity and in humility before God called him to do what he was called to do in that next season. Here, the sinless son of God working a job until he was 30 and doing it unto the Lord, and no one knows 
what or how or where he went day to day, faithfully serving the Lord. Would Jesus have disrespected a person while working? No. Would Jesus kind of slack when no one was watching? No. Would Jesus ever have billed someone extra time when no one was really checking the books? No. Was Jesus a begrudging servant? No. Did Jesus minimize his job? No. If you are a believer in Christ, you should exemplify these things in our service to Christ. Lastly, if you have people under your care, if you employ people, if you are a boss, we're supposed to lead like Christ. Now, um, leadership is tough. Having people under your care can be tough. You take on numerous responsibilities. You take on numerous sacrifices for the people that you lead and that you're in charge of. And remember, you need the Spirit's care. You need the Spirit's power. Paul says this of leading churches in his own work. Apart from other things, there are daily pressures on me and anxiety for all the churches that he's leading. Paul's like, my mind is split in a million different directions. I have all this anxiety. There's all these things that are supposed to be happening. Second Corinthians, he says that. But he goes on to describe how in his weakness, he finds the grace of Jesus to be sufficient and the power of Christ to be perfect through his weakness. Lean on Christ if you have people in your employ. What kind of, what kind of leadership did Jesus exercise? Servant leadership. He displayed humility. Um, he came to serve. He took up the towel. He took the dirtiest job first. He was the first there and the last to go. That's who people want to follow. He cared for the vulnerable. He spoke for those that didn't have a voice. He interacted with those that were outcast. He gave people a chance that everyone else kicked out. He was a shepherd. He was not a dictator. He brought back into care those that were hurt and wounded into the fold, right? That's the kind of leader Jesus was and is to you and I. That, we, we need to have holiness in our leadership. Jesus said, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Don't get caught up in that, church. We live in a place, in a time, that it's so easy to just get wrapped up and folded up into chasing whatever it is we're chasing, the next thing the next car, the next gadget, the next house, the next this, the next that, and we lose focus of what we're actually supposed to be doing. Paul is trying to course correct us and say, hey, those things are all great and well, but they're not the ultimate things. Make Christ the ultimate thing. Don't gain the whole world and lose your soul. And he's, he reminds us that if we have Christ, we have everything. We're rich in him. 2 Corinthians, Paul reminds us this, these amazing words. Listen to this. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. Church, do you belong to Christ? If you do, if he's yours and you're his, you have everything. It's hard to believe. That's a rad, I know, I, know, I know living in this day, in this time, in this town, saying that is not an easy thing to believe. I, I realize saying that sounds like, oh, that's easy for the pastor to say. That's the truth of the realities of what's in this book and what Jesus wants to press into our hearts 
So stop chasing sparkling things. If we have him, we have everything. That's, that, that's it. And my heart is wayward to chase other things, and your heart is wayward to chase other things. And the gospel wants to bring us back to the reality that in Christ we have all in all. That's what matters in this life. And when we cling to him, and we have him, we have everything. We have everything. Paul wants us to realize that. Paul's saying, in light of the great salvation that we've been given, though we were undeserving, though we were far from him, he brought us close through the blood of Christ. We now have been given everything in him to live the life we've been called to live. And he's saying, take your eyes off of uh, your own power, your own possession, your own authority, and love like Jesus lived, serve like Jesus served, and pour your life out because he is worthy. He is worthy. We have everything in him. Let's pray together, church. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it addresses every facet of our lives. Lord, we thank you that in your perfect providence and your sovereignty, Lord, you undermine even evil institutions through the pervasive nature of the gospel, Lord, and you blow them up. And you bring grace and dignity and life and healing and self-worth and value to people even in the lowliest of places. And so, God, I just pray as an application for us, God, that if we find ourselves in a job that is tough, that we're unsure of, that we don't know what's next, Lord, I pray that you would give us perspective to work as we're uh, working and serving unto Christ. Lord, if we have people in our care as bosses, if we are an employer, Lord, may we be chief servants. May we take up the towel like Christ. May we serve and love the least of these. May we get to know those that work under us, get to know their names. They have a story. Lord, give us a heart to work hard and well and good, but for the good of people. Not using people for a goal, but people are the point. So Lord, help us live out this countercultural reality that you've spelled out for us and help us by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, let's stand and sing to him one last time.